You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 194 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Michael's Mission, Revealing the Essential Secrets of Human Nature, Twelve Lectures, translated by Johanna Collis. This is Lecture 3, given in Dornach on the 23rd of November, 1919. I mentioned here the day before yesterday that as members of the human race we are at present living in the fourth sphere of our evolution. We know that what is now earthly evolution has evolved gradually from the Saturn evolution out of which firstly the Sun evolution and then the Moon evolution emerged. When we look at this sequence of four configurations of the earthly planet to which, of course, humanity as such belongs, we may consider the human being only insofar as he is a being of the head. And we must realize that in speaking in this way, we include everything which belongs to the head in that it symbolizes whatever belongs to our perception through the senses and whatever belongs to our human intelligence, together with whatever flows into our social life through these. we must include all the experiences we have which arise on account of our being creatures with sense perceptions and creatures of intelligence. All of this is encompassed in my expression, quote, the human being as a being of the head, close quote. We speak light-heartedly about being surrounded by the air as physical human beings, We must understand that this orb of the air belongs to us. After all, the air which is at this moment inside us was only a moment ago outside us. As human beings, we are inconceivable outside this orb of the air. As modern individuals, we have become accustomed to imagining that this situation also persisted in earlier times that we can speak about the air and such like in this modern manner also when referring to earlier times. But this is not the case. Today we find it peculiar to speak in the way as we do about being surrounded by air when we want to express that we live in a sphere which provides the conditions necessary for beings of the senses and beings of intelligence, for beings of the head when expressed symbolically, as I explained just now. Well, as I said, this is only one of the spheres in which we find ourselves. Actually, we exist in various spheres. So now let us proceed to another sphere for humanity and investigate what surrounds us now that we are living on our earth, which having passed through three former stages is now in its fourth stage of development. The area of this circle denotes everything in which we live now that we are in our fourth sphere of development. Bracket, the inner circular area below is drawn orange. See plate four, close bracket. 
In addition, we live in a further sphere of development, a sphere of development to which the spiritual beings belong who are our creators. Let us initially disregard ourselves, the human beings, and turn our attention to those beings among the higher hierarchies whom we have named the spirits of form, those spirits who create all that is inherent in form. In doing so, we realize that the sphere which belongs to these divine spirits can only be reached by us as human beings when we have passed through three further stages of evolution, parenthesis described in my book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, as the Jupiter stage, the Venus stage, and the Vulcan stage, close parenthesis, and then arrive at the eighth stage. These creative spirits are now at the stage which we as human beings shall reach after the Vulcan stage. This is their sphere, which belongs to them just as the fourth sphere belongs to us. However, we must picture these two spheres as being one within the other, as permeating one another. Bracket, a larger circular area is drawn over the first one, yellow sea plate floor again, close parenthesis. Excuse me, close bracket. So if I call this other sphere the eighth, we do actually live not only in the fourth, but also in the eighth sphere, owing to the way in which our divine creators live together with us in this sphere. If you now examine this eighth sphere, you will see living there not only our divine creator spirits, but also the Aramonic beings. So in the environment of the eighth sphere, we live together with those spirits whom we sense to be divine powers, but also with the Aramonic beings. This is what the distribution of these spiritual beings looks like. And we can now go into more detail regarding these spiritual beings by examining which aspects of ourselves are connected with these spheres. First of all, we observe through the clairvoyance of initiation science that because we are living in the fourth sphere of our development, we are, as I have said, perceptive and intelligent beings. But we must never forget that in this very intelligence, which always denotes a combination of sense perceptions and intelligence, the power of what is luciferic is involved. This luciferic power is always closely bound up with the specific type of intelligence which human beings today still regard as their own and with which they most prefer to be involved. Yet this intelligence has only been apportioned to the human being because that higher being of whom I have spoken as the Michael being has driven the Luciferic spirit down into the human sphere, this fourth sphere of humanity. And that is how the intelligent impulse actually entered into the human being. You can sense what this intelligent impulse signifies in humanity when you examine the impersonal element of what still remains as human intelligence. We human beings do possess many personal interests. We meet one another with our personal interests, and we are individualized through those personal interests. 
but this individualization is brought up short by the intelligence. As far as our intelligence is concerned, as far as our logic is concerned, we human beings, all of us, possess the same intelligence. And we count on this. We would not all possess this same intelligence if the Luciferic influence imparted by Michael had not come upon humanity. It is easy for us to understand one another only because we share our intelligence, only because our shared intelligence is derived from Luciferic spirituality. This Luciferic spirituality came into being through the way in which Michael imbued, influenced human beings with the being of Lucifer. And these Luciferic influences have developed further during the course of human history. Alongside these, much else has also developed in the human being. Yet still today, this Luciferic intelligence, which we describe as our own intelligence, is regarded in the widest circles as that which sets the human being apart. To make this even clearer, you should cast the eye of your soul also over something else which is capable of uniting us throughout the whole earth once it has extended right across the earth, and that is the Christ impulse. The Christ impulse is something other than the intelligence impulse. There is something compelling about the intelligence impulse. You cannot make the intelligence of humanity your personal affair. You cannot suddenly personally determine something which has to be decided through intelligence without becoming excluded from social life as being mad. But on the other hand, the only relationship you can gain with the Christ impulse is a personal one. No one can interfere in the relationship someone else wishes to establish with Christ. This is absolutely a personal matter. But because Christ underwent the mystery of Golgotha, thus uniting himself with earthly evolution, however many individuals establish their own personal relationship with Christ, it will nevertheless be the same. This means that individuals are brought together by something which each one carries out individually, not through compulsion as would be the case through intelligence. But because the Christ impulse brings it about that every individual builds his own relationship with Christ in such a way that with every individual it is the same. That is the difference between the intelligence impulse and the Christ impulse. Throughout all of humanity, the Christ impulse can be the same while also being a personal matter for each individual. Intelligence, on the other hand, is not a personal matter. Now, what was it into which the Christ impulse descended? I have already hinted where the answer lies in regard to this. We know that the development of the head is now in regression. With regard to his head, the human being is now constantly dying away. We can point to the cosmic fact that Michael pushed the Luciferic beings down into the realm of humanity.
In this way, the Luciferic beings came to reside in the human head, but a human head that is dying away. And here, these Luciferic beings began to combat the dying of the human head. So now we come to a secret of human nature which has always been known in various forms, but which is now almost entirely hidden. In respect of his divine evolution, the human being carries a perpetually moribund development in his head. But this dying away is running parallel with a constant rekindling of life by Lucifer. Lucifer is constantly endeavoring to make our head as alive as the rest of our organism. But from the point of view of the organic realm, Lucifer would deflect the evolution of humanity from its divine tendency if he were to succeed in enlivening the head in the same degree as the rest of the organism is alive. The divine tendency of human evolution has to work against this. The human being must remain connected with the evolution of the earth in order to be able to move forward with subsequent earth evolutions through the Jupiter, Venus and Vulcan evolutions. If Lucifer were to reach his goal, the human being would be unable to follow this predetermined path but would instead become embedded in a cosmos which would be intelligent through and through. What one could say is that physiologically Lucifer is constantly at work in us by sending up into our head from the rest of our organism the life forces which want to permeate the human head. As seen from the aspect of the soul, Lucifer constantly wants to fill our intelligence, which consists merely of thoughts, of images, with a content of substance. Lucifer always persists. Having just now spoken of the physical aspect, I now refer to the soul aspect. He always persists in forming images in the soul in such a way that something which should be of an artistic nature, becomes filled instead with something substantial. In other words, so that our thought content, our imaginative content, becomes permeated instead with ordinary earthly reality. The consequence of this would be that we human beings would move away from the other reality, and flee across to a reality of thoughts which would be actual reality and not merely thoughts. There is in our being constantly a tendency for our fantasies to become realities. Indeed, the greatest imaginable efforts are made to transform human fantasies into realities. All things in humanity which cause internal illness, are linked with this Luciferic tendency. If we can fully comprehend the work of Lucifer in this respect, as he strives to press forces of vitality into the dying forces of the human head, then we shall be able to diagnose every internal illness. 
and the scientific development of medicine must work toward being able to build on an understanding of this luciferic element. To give matters a push in this direction is one of the tasks of the Michael influence, which is now beginning to enter into human development. Now, on the other hand, the Aramanic influence is also here. This influence asserts itself from out of the eighth sphere from which the rest of our organism, with the exception of the head, obtains its full vitality. In its own organization it is fully open to vitality. And into this the Aramanic powers work. They endeavor to send forces of death into the forces of vitality belonging to the other parts of our organism. Those forces of death which, according to divine development, otherwise belong to the head. In this way, via the detour of Araman, we receive from the eighth sphere the forces of death, physically speaking. With reference to the soul element, I would have to say the following. Everything that exerts its influence from this eighth sphere is here working on human will, not on human intelligence. The wish for it is based on the human will. The will always contains an aspect of wishing. This wishing aspect is founded on the will into which Araman constantly endeavors to bring a personal element of the human being. And it is because the aspect of wishing always lies hidden in the personal element of the human being that our progress toward death is always an image of our soul activity of will. Instead of allowing ourselves to be permeated by the divine ideals, instead of permitting them to enter into our wishing and therefore our will, something personal is always brought into our wishing and our willing. So we really do find ourselves in a situation of balance between the Luciferic and the Aramonic elements. In the physical realm, the Luciferic Aramonic element transmits to us what is sickness and death. In the soul realm, illusion develops caused by the way we regard one thing or another as reality when it actually stems from the world of thought or imagination or fantasy. And regarding the spiritual element, furthermore, the cupidity of egoism enters into the human being by this means. Uh, see plate 5. Well, so now we see how the Lucifer-Araman duality is bound up with the nature of the human being. And based on Milton's title Paradise Lost, on Klopstock's title Messias, and on Goethe's title Faust, I have explained to you how modern civilized humanity can become mistaken with regard to this duality. And now as humanity we have passed the halfway point of our evolution. This is how the situation looks now. There's a drawing. Initially, earthly evolution ascended until it reached its highest point, after which it began to descend. 
For reasons we need not explain today, it remained at the same level for some time, from the Greco-Roman era until the 15th century. But since that time, earthly human evolution has been properly on the descent. Physical earthly evolution has been on the descent for much longer. Physically, the descent of earthly development began during the period which preceded our last ice age, that is, before the catastrophe of Atlantis. This is something we anthroposophists do not need to tell people, for it is already known to geologists, as I have often mentioned. As we walk upon the face of the earth, there are many places where we find ourselves stepping on the deteriorating crust of the earth. You need only consult the more superior geological descriptions of the earth's development in order to find verification in natural science that the earth is indeed now on a downward path of its development. And what lives and works in human beings is also on a downward path of development. As human beings, we can no longer hope for any improvement in the development of our body. We must look for an upward path by learning to see what there is in the human being that leads onward to further formations of earth development. We must learn to observe the human being of the future. To do this, we must think in the way of Michael. Let me now describe more closely what is meant by Michaelic thinking. When you encounter a fellow human being today, you do so with your entirely materialistic consciousness. You say, but not out loud, or indeed not even in your thoughts, but you do say it in the more intimate foundations of your awareness. This is a human being made of flesh and blood. This person consists of earthly substances. You say this of animals, too, and of plants as well. But when you say this with reference to man, to animal, and to plant, it is correct only with regard to the mineral realm. It refers solely to the mineral nature. Let us consider the most extreme case, the human being. In his outer appearance he looks like this, and there is a drawing, plate 5. But you do not see this external figure, you do not encounter it with your physical capacity of perception, since more than 90% of it is filled with fluid, with water. What you do see with your physical eyes is its mineral content. What you see is the external mineral content which the human being unites with himself. What you do not see is the human being who brings it all together. You speak correctly when you say, That which is standing before me here are the physical particles with which the human form is filled. These are what makes this invisible form visible for me. The human being himself is completely and utterly invisible. All of you sitting here are imperceptible to the physical senses. A certain number of figures are sitting here and through some inner capacity of attraction they have gathered up particles of matter. Drawing plate 5. These physical particles are what we see. We see the mineral element. The real human beings who sit here are invisible. They are supersensible. 
When we say such a thing in full consciousness during every moment of our waking life, this is what we describe as Michaelic thinking. We cease to see the human being in this agglomeration of particles, which he has merely organized in a certain way. The animals do likewise, and also the plants. The minerals alone do not. When we become aware of the fact that we are living and moving among invisible human beings, then we are thinking in a Michaelic way. We speak of Aramanic beings and of Luciferic beings. We speak of the Angeloi, Archangeloi, Archai, and so on, the beings of the hierarchies. These are invisible beings. We come to know them through their deeds. We have spoken in recent days as well about many of those deeds. We learn to recognize these beings through what they do. Yet is this different as far as human beings are concerned? Here in the physical world we get to know the human being, who is invisible, through the way in which he arranges the mineral particles in a form that resembles a human being. But this is merely an activity, a working of the human being. The fact that we have to be clear about the workings of Araman and Lucifer, of the Angeloi, Arch Angeloi and Archai, and so on, in a different way, merely means getting to know these things in a different way. But the fact that these beings are supersensible does not distinguish them in any way from us, so long as we are aware of what a human being actually is. We are employing Michaelic thinking when we understand that in our being we do not differ in any way from the supersensible beings. So long as the minerals had something to give them, human beings were able to cope without having this awareness. But now that the mineral world has entered into a downward development, the human being is obliged to grow into a spiritual understanding both of himself and of the world. We can find the inner strength to realize that we need no longer go through the world thinking that this collection of material particles is a human being. The human being is a supersensible being, while those particles are merely gestures from the external mineral world, pointing to what a human being is. It has been possible for us to have greater strength to realize these things since the seventies of the nineteenth century. It is solely on account of the Aramonic influences I described here a week ago that people are rejecting this through not being willing to approach this inner awareness. This is linked to something else in human life. As long as we carry on believing in the error that the human being is a sense-perceptible being and not a supersensible being, so long shall we also be prone to other errors as well. We speak of development and imagine that it will just continue on and on as a matter of course. As you know, it was not possible to depict such a development artistically in our building. When designing the capitals of the columns, I had to show the first three in an ascending development, the fourth one in the center, the fifth in a descending development, the sixth 
somewhat simpler, and the seventh the simplest of all. There, added to the ascending development, I had to depict the descending development. We do actually have the latter in our head. Whereas the rest of our organism is still in an ascending development, our head is already in a descending development. To believe that development can only ascend is to distance oneself from the truth by speaking in the same vein as Haeckel, who wrote under the influence of certain errors, maintaining that what was simplest came first, to be followed by further developments which grow ever more complicated and ever more perfect on and on into infinity. This is nonsense. Every progressive development in turn enters into a regression. Every ascending development is followed by a descending development. Every ascent already bears the potential for descent within it. It is one of the most awkward errors of more recent humanity that they have lost touch with the connection between evolution and devolution, between ascending development and descending development. Every ascending development bears within it the potential for descent. At the moment when an ascending development begins to descend, the physical begins to enter into the spiritual. Wherever the physical begins to decline, space arises in which the spiritual can develop. There is room in our head for spiritual development because a physical decline has set in. We shall not be capable of understanding our human nature, or with it the rest of the world, until we become able to see things as they really are by bringing our intelligence into connection with luciferic development in the manner I have described. When we have succeeded in this, we shall be able to evaluate matters correctly by knowing that our intelligence needs a boost like this if it is to bring us properly to our goal. Lucifer must be prevented by the Christ principle from turning the human being away from his predestined divine direction. As I have said, one thing is bound up with another. So, under the influence of that error, which has added luciferic characteristics to the divine powers, the human being has a tendency nowadays to be idealistic about how to represent something beautiful. It is, of course, possible to represent beauty as such, but one must be aware that if one were to devote oneself solely to beauty, one would be cultivating within oneself those forces which get caught up in the wake of what is luciferic. For just as in the real world devolution belongs to evolution, so is beauty by itself, not one-sidedly present here. Beauty alone, of which Lucifer makes use in his endeavors to delude human beings, would free us from earthly evolution rather than binding us to it. In reality, as with the interplay of evolution and devolution, we are involved with an interplay, or indeed with a fierce battle between beauty and ugliness.
If we wish to understand art in a proper way, we must never forget that the ultimate task of art in the world is to show how beauty and ugliness are bound to be at loggerheads with one another. Simply by taking account of the balance between what is beautiful and what is ugly, we find our place in reality, rather than being one-sidedly in a reality which is not ours, but rather that of Lucifer or that of Ahriman. It is most important for ideas such as these to find their way into human cultural development. In ancient Greece, and you know how enthusiastically I have often spoken in this very place about Greek culture, it was still possible to devote oneself one-sidedly to beauty, because at that time human beings, or at least the Greek people, had not yet become bound up in the descending earthly evolution. But since that time we ought no longer to grant ourselves the luxury of cultivating only what is beautiful. This would amount to an escape from reality. We must bravely and courageously face up to the battle between what is beautiful and what is ugly. In this interplay, we must become capable of sympathizing and empathizing with both the dissonances and the consonances in the world. This will bring strength into human evolution, and from this strength will come the possibility of building an inner attitude which will really succeed in taking us beyond the illusion that the human being is no more than a conglomeration of mineral particles which he has heaped up inside himself. We could today already say, regarding the physical, that the human being does not show the signs of external mineral nature. External minerality is heavy, but that in us which enables us to develop soul qualities and I don't mean intelligence, is linked not to heaviness, but to the opposite of heaviness, namely to that which we might call the upwelling of fluidity. I have described on other occasions how our brain floats in the cerebral fluid. If it did not float in this way, the tiny blood vessels in it would be crushed. When Archimedes was in his bath, he discovered that he was less weighty, and was so delighted that he uttered his famous Eureka. Of course, you learned about all this in physics. We do not then live from being dragged down in our soul, but from being lifted up. As far as the soul is concerned, we live not by our brain being heavy, but by it being lighter on account of the cerebral fluid. We live through that which draws us away from the earth, this can even be a claim made physically today. What I have been wanting to draw your attention to during these three days has been that we need, with regard to modern life, an attitude of soul which is aware in every waking moment of what is supersensible in our immediate surroundings and which does not succumb to the error of thinking that human beings are real because we see them and spiritual beings are not real because we do not see them. We do not see human beings. This is the error, that we believe we are indeed seeing them. We are in fact no different from the beings of the higher hierarchies. 
The task facing modern humanity is learning to comprehend the similarity between the beings of the higher hierarchies and ourselves, and even the animals and plants. We speak of the fact that through the mystery of Golgotha, the Christ impulse entered into earthly evolution, initially into the evolution of humanity with which it is now intertwined. People say they cannot see him. Well, they cannot see him so long as they are in error about the human being, so long as what they are looking at is something entirely other than what the human being really is. As soon as this is no longer a theory, but a livingly felt reality of soul, enabling us to see something supersensible in the human being, as soon as this is so, we will develop in us the ability to perceive the Christ impulse everywhere among us, and say with conviction, do not seek him in external gestures, for he is everywhere among you. But it will be necessary to develop modesty and humility in order to believe that it is really important to generate an awareness of the human being primarily and everywhere as a supersensible being. Merely making a theoretical claim is not sufficient. Only when we really believe it to be, and indeed feel it to be, an absurdity that what confronts us is the actual human being, only then shall we be in the state of soul about which I am speaking. If you were to go out there to the building site and gather up some of the bits and pieces lying around and clutch them all in front of you so that anyone meeting you would see only broken bricks and scraps of boards, you wouldn't say all this debris, arranged in a certain way, was a human being. Yet you are doing just the same with the mineral substances arranged inside you when you encounter a fellow human being. You say that because you can see these mineral substances with your eyes, they are a human being. The truth is, however, that all this is merely a gesture pointing toward the true human being. Looking back to pre-Christian times, we will find that God's messengers came to the earth in visible form. They revealed themselves to the human being who was then able to comprehend them. The greatest messenger from God to come to the earth was at the same time the one who was able to reveal himself in the greatest event that took place on the earth without any collaboration by human beings. We are now living in the age of the Michael revelation. This is another revelation just like that other one, but it now no longer obtrudes upon human beings because they have entered into the evolution of their freedom. We must go out to meet the revelation of Michael. We must prepare ourselves in order that he may fill us with the greatest strength with which to become aware of what is supersensible in the immediate vicinity of the earth. Do not fail to recognize what this Michael revelation, if approached in freedom, will entail for human beings now and in the near future. Do not fail to recognize how nowadays people are endeavoring to solve the social question on the basis of the remnants of former states of consciousness. Yet everything it was possible to solve through the old states of consciousness 
has indeed been solved. The earth is on the downward path of its evolution. The challenges facing us today will not be resolved by the ways of thinking arising from olden times. They will only be resolved by a humanity which possesses a new constitution of soul. Our task is to work toward enabling this new constitution of soul to arise among human beings. What we see today weighs on our soul like a terrible incubus that human beings are unable to extricate themselves from ideas which have been cultivated for thousands of years. We see today how the consequences of these age-old ideas run their course almost automatically. We see how these ideas, practically void of any content, continue to exist as mere husks of words. All around us people talk of human ideals. Yet what those ideals actually contain is nothing. They are hollow sounds of words, for humanity now is in need of a new constitution of soul. Once upon a time a call was heard by humanity, which in our language we may translate as follows, Change your mind, for the time is fulfilled. In those times people were still able to change their mind, based on the old soul constitutions. But that is no longer possible. If that demand of old is to be fulfilled now, it must be done out of a new constitution of soul. Micaiah brought the Yahweh tradition, the Yahweh influence to human beings. Since the end of the 1870s, he has been proceeding to bring us an understanding of the Christ impulse in the true sense of the word if only we are able to go out toward Him. It is up to us to do this. We go out toward Him by fulfilling two things. As regards our own soul constitution, we can say to ourselves, we must turn away from a certain error. I do not want to burden you too much with narrow abstractions or philosophical worldviews, but there is one thing to which I must draw your attention because it is a symptom of more recent human evolution. For example, the philosopher Descartes lived at the dawn of the New Age. He still knew a certain amount about the spiritual element, which, for example, plays in through the dying human nervous system. Yet at the same time he also said, I think, therefore I am. This is the opposite of what is true. We do not exist because we think, for in thinking we have only an image of what is real. We would gain nothing from thinking if we really did exist within our thinking, if thinking were not actually a mere mirror image, a reflection. We must become aware of the reflective character of our world of thinking, of the mirroring character of our thought world. The moment we become conscious of this reflective character, we shall begin to turn to a different source of reality within us. It is of this that Michael wishes to speak to us. So we must endeavor to recognize our world of thinking in its character as a reflector. We shall then be working to counter the Luciferic development. 
It is this development which is most interested in pouring substance into our thinking, in projecting the deceptive image of there being substance in our thinking. It is image, not substance, which is in our thinking. We shall bring up the substance from elsewhere, from deeper layers of our consciousness. That is the one thing. If we are aware that our thoughts make us weak, we appeal to the strength of Michael. He is the spirit who draws our attention to that within us which is more strongly in us than our thoughts. Whereas through more recent civilization we have learned to pay attention primarily to the thought. The reason for our having become weak human beings is that we have regarded thought as being something real. However much we endeavor to turn away from mere abstract intelligence, we are only seemingly doing so. As modern human beings, we are completely under the frightful lash of intelligence. We do not send into our thoughts what comes from the deeper layers of our being and what ought to dwell in them. The second thing is that we must bring into our wishes and thus our will, the reality which arises solely from what we recognize as supersensible reality. I have frequently mentioned here that our failure to take seriously the character of the mystery of Golgotha has wreaked bitter revenge upon us. I have drawn your attention to views such as, for example, those of the liberal theologian Adolf Harnack, There are many such liberal theologians who are quite relaxed about stating that there is no proof in historical documents as to the reality of the mystery of Golgotha. While one can prove historically that Caesar existed or Napoleon, it is not possible to prove in the same way that Christ Jesus existed. Why is this? It is because in the mystery of Golgotha human beings were to have been presented with an event to which they could only have supersensible access. It was not intended to be a sense-perceptible event. It was not supposed to have any sense-perceptible, any external historical proof, for the very reason that humanity was to learn how to rise up to the supersensible world through the mystery of Golgotha. All this points to two aspects which we should approach. On the one hand, we must recognize what is supersensible in the immediately sense-perceptible world, in the world of the human being, of the animals and of the plants. This is the Michaelic path. And to take this further, in the world which we recognize is a supersensible one, we must find the Christ impulse. In describing this, I am at the same time also describing the most profound impulses of the social question. That abstract league of nations will not solve the international problem. Such abstractions will not create unity among all people on earth. It is the spirits who lead human beings into the supersensible world, about whom we have been speaking in the last few days, who will bring humanity together. Externally, humanity is now approaching tough battles, And from these tough battles, of which we are now only at the beginning, as I have often said, 
and which makes a nonsense of the old impulses of earth evolution, there will arise no political, economic, or cultural cures which might be taken from the apothecary of ancient historical development. From what comes to us from ancient times, the ferments will arise which have initially placed Europe at the beginning of its abyss and which will see Asia and America at loggerheads with one another. And this in turn will generate a struggle covering the face of the whole earth. The one and only remedy for this nonsense being made of human evolution will be that which can lead humanity to the spirit, to the path of Michael, which finds its continuation in the path of Christ. The end of Lecture 3